Well, this morning, as we've been doing here periodically, I want to go back and take a look at the book of Ecclesiastes. This morning we'll be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. If you would stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, I'll read that for us. And there's some markers that the, the preacher gives for us along the way in this passage. Look for him saying things like, I saw and I said. These will help us as we work our way through the passage. Ecclesiastes three sixteen to 22 This is the very living word of our living God. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And so ends the reading from this God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. May he impress it upon our hearts and minds here this morning. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once again. God, our Father, would you bless this time when we come before your word? Would you not only bless it, but would you yourself speak to us through your word? Teach us what you would have us learn. Help us to take these lessons to heart and to put them, put them into practice in our lives. We ask it all, as always, in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of my favorite television shows when I was growing up was The Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau. Also kind of like Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, but I was a Jacques Cousteau fanboy. I love the adventure of the show. I loved this glimpse we got into a world that's not accessible to most people. Oceans and rivers and lakes. Things that live in there. Some of my favorites were the sharks the whales, or even they did an episode right here in Elliott Bay in Puget Sound of the giant octopus that lives right here in our area. And every episode, it seemed like there was an underlying sense of danger to what they were doing. And it was highlighted even by Jacques Cousteau's own narration. It had the sense of, you know, Rod Serling and, and the, uh, the Twilight Zone. You know, so now here the coral fish finds its home in the anemone, free from the stings that would bring death to other creatures. And you can just feel oh, the tension of, of what's going on here. But there was that sense of, of death just on the horizon, just on the edge of the things that they were doing, storms that they faced, air running out in their tanks, dangerous animals 
all the things that went on. But when I got older, I learned a couple sad realities about Mr. Cousteau and his life. One very sad aspect of his life is that his very own son, his right-hand man, in all of his studies died at a young age in a very tragic accident, the very kind of thing that seemed a danger on the TV show. But even more than that, I learned later on in the early 1990s, Mr. Cousteau became an advocate of not just human population control, but human population reduction. Controlling it by the determined, deliberate reduction in the population. A quote from a 1991 interview with UNESCO. He said, in order to stabilize world population, we must eliminate 350,000 per day. 1991, 350,000 people per day must be eliminated. That's terrifying. That's horrid. If that's really what life is about, if that's really what it takes to survive in this world that we live in, numerically controlling the population of human beings just for the survival of the human species, controlling it in such a way that we have to kill a portion of that population, then death like all the other subjects covered by the preacher and as he covers in this passage. Death really is vanity. It really is pointless. Because it makes life meaningless. Because it makes man just like any other animal that has to be controlled. And that's the attitude, despite any protests to the contrary by those who advocate such positions. Cousteau himself said, Saying this is so horrible to contemplate, we shouldn't even say it. Of course, then you went ahead and said it. And it might surprise us that in many ways, at least at a, at a surface reading of the text, that that's the conclusion the preacher comes to in the passage this morning. At least that seems to be his conclusion when he considers life under the sun. But what we need to remember is the preachers have also been telling us about life under heaven. And he doesn't forget this. It, it bothers me, quite honestly, that commentators will, will forget or ignore the fact that the preacher knows about eternity in men's hearts. That he knows about heaven from which things are ruled and ascribe to him some sort of pessimistic viewpoint of life. He hasn't forgotten who God is or what he's doing. But here in this passage, he turns to consider another aspect of life. He's looking at justice. He's looking at wickedness and the places where wickedness exists. And it leads to two observations and a final conclusion. You, you heard, I hope, the language I saw in verse 16. And two things he said in his heart, or he said to himself, and then the conclusion in verse 22, so I saw. We'll look at those and work through them this morning. He saw justice and righteousness, and in the midst of them he saw wickedness. Two things to learn from that. 
And then thirdly, what meaning can there be for life, for the preacher, for his audience, and also for us today? So first, where he goes looking. Verse 16, moreover, he's continuing his observations, his exploration of wisdom in this life. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there was wickedness, in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. He's looking at specific times and circumstances in the life of man under the sun, times when there should be justice and when there should be righteousness. And instead, what does he see? Wickedness. In the place of justice, wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there, wickedness. What's he talking about? What does he mean? I think he's talking about two very simple places or very common places that we know of. The place of justice is the courtroom. The public place, the king's house, his throne room, or the place of judgment at the town gate or in the town square or before a local judge where justice is decided and meted out. The preacher expects that in those places there should actually be justice. And what does he find instead? Again, wickedness. He doesn't tell us what that wickedness is specifically, but I think we can guess, can't we? We can, we can surmise what he's probably talking about. Isaiah talked about it in, in the passage we heard this morning. Bribes given. Perhaps a bribe to give the wrong decision. Perhaps a bribe given to a witness to give false testimony. Or perhaps just an evil witness who without a bribe goes up and gives false testimony because he or she themselves is wicked and evil. Deliberate actions taken in the course of justice so that evil is worked against those who are innocent. Those who oppress others are not punished as they should be. The widows, the orphans, and others that the Bible so often mentioned. Or laws that are put into place that are themselves evil. I get emails now from my local state representatives, and as I prayed, they are bragging. They are bragging about passing laws that make it easier to kill babies in the womb, that make it easier to have surgeries for our children that mutilate their bodies. This is injustice. This is wickedness where there should be justice. Or think about things we see even in our own society. Something that God hates, divorce, is far too easy to get and often punishes the, the innocent party. Or same-sex marriage, which is now the law of the land, at odds with God's design for one man and one woman. That picture we have in Ephesians that we just talked about of Christ and his bride, the church. The killing of the unborn. How these things are celebrated is a, is a blight against our society. And what's coming next? What kind of wickedness and evil is coming next? Marriage between three or more parties? It's on the horizon. Relationships between humans and beasts? It's no longer prosecuted in some countries in Europe. Assisted suicide? That's here already. Euthanasia for population control or easing of people from life into death. Again, spreading. These are evil. This is vanity. In the place of justice, 
wickedness instead. And that might be bad enough, but we have to admit something here. It's not just out there in the world around us. There's also the realm of righteousness. In the place of righteousness, even there, he sees wickedness. That's the church. That's the place where God is worshipped. Where there should be righteousness, there's wickedness. Where we should be paying attention to and learning and following God's law, there's disobedience. We argue, we fight, we slander, we gossip. We tear down one another more than we build up. We're proud, we're arrogant, we're judgmental. We hoard what is ours and fail to share it with others. Seek to lord our position over others. Or maybe we're jealous of others' gifts and blessings that we think we should have. We're not content with what God has given us. We complain and we complain and we complain. We want things our way. Again, we we do exactly the opposite of what Paul has been teaching us in Ephesians. We do not submit to one another in love. We're complacent in our worship. We're complacent in our fellowship with one another. We're lacking in prayer. We're lacking in our study of God's Word. There is wickedness in God's own house. And I don't just mean in any one congregation. We're all sinners, and we deal with that each week as we come in repentance as part of our worship service. But I mean in the church. We reformed. We're known as arrogant, proud, angry, contentious people. That's a blight on us. It shouldn't be. So before we're too judgmental about the world around us, we need to look at the log in our own high. Again, judgment begins with the house of God. Well, neither one of those is a very pretty picture of life under the sun, is it? The preacher saw it, and if we're honest, we see it too. Well, then he makes two observations. First, in verse 17, I said in my heart, I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and for every work. When he says that God will judge the righteous and the wicked, he doesn't mean just that God will make an evaluation and say that's right and that's wrong. But that judgment includes the punishment or reward that goes with it. It's the full scope of what judgment means. God not only determines who is right and who is wrong, but God punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous. That's related to the rest of his statement, that there's a time for every matter and every work. This is a direct echo of verses 2 through 7, 2 through 8, really. A time to be born, a time to die, all the way down to verse 8. A time to love and hate, a time for war, a time for peace. Under heaven, under God's rule, there's a time for everything. So as he considers the evil and the vanity of this wicked life under the sun, the preacher allows again this intrusion of life under heaven, which corrects the wickedness of life under the sun. The preacher is confident God will judge. God will punish. God will reward. This is life under heaven. This is life under the authority of God. He's already told us that God is in control of every time and season, but he's adding here that God is also in control of judgment and of justice for every time and for every season. In that right time, 
in that right season, God will correct the injustices of life under the sun. He's told us that God has put eternity in men's hearts, and so I think implied here as well is if it's not corrected in this life, it will be in eternity. I think the preacher does have a sense of the afterlife. He does have a sense of eternity. That's partly why eternity is in our hearts. We long for justice. We long for righteousness. God will judge at the right time, in the right season. So we can take heart. Don't forget that every wickedness, every injustice will be set right. That's true whether you and I see it or not. So there's a sense of which we need to be, in which we need to be content that we do serve a God who will set things right. Every work, every matter will be judged and punished or rewarded. We've actually seen this the last couple of weeks in our Tuesday night study. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 73. The psalmist Asaph has a very similar complaint about the wickedness in the world and how the evil prosper. And he tells us in the middle of that psalm that his, his heart, his mind was changed when he went into the, the place of God to worship God. He confesses that he'd been a beast in his thinking up to that time. But now, having gone into the house of God, having considered God and who he is, he knows that God will judge the wicked and they will have their end. This last Tuesday, we looked at Malachi chapter 4. A complaint, evildoers again, they prosper. But he hears the word of the Lord in chapter 4, verse 1. The day is coming. The day is coming. Burning like a furnace when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. And their ashes will spread over the earth and the righteous will walk on them. So just like we are to be content with the things that God gives us in life, the 10th commandment, not coveting, we're also to be content with the circumstances that God gives us in life, including the very unfortunate and very disturbing circumstances of injustice. Talk about that more a little bit later. And, and sometimes being content with the circumstances is far more difficult, difficult than being content with uh, the things that we have. Well, the second observation that the preacher makes in verse 18 and following, I said in my heart, I said to myself with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. And then he goes on to describe how both men and animals die. They come from the same place, they go to the same place. They came from the dust, they go to the dust. Vanity. Might be a shocking observation to make. Men are just like beasts. But isn't that what we're taught in grade school? Human beings are just another form of mammal, classified among the mammals. Did that bug you when you were at school? Kind of bugged me. Is it true? Is it true that men are just like the beasts? Well, yeah, the preacher's right if we, again, only consider life under the sun. Because if all is vanity under the sun, if all is meaningless under the sun and futility, if all die, and he's already told us this, this truth earlier in the book, 
If both man and beast are made from and returned to the dust, as verse 20 says, then we are no different. There's no advantage, despite all the learning and knowledge and understanding that human beings might have. There's no advantage. We come from the same place. We go to the same place. Verse 19, the preacher says, that's vanity. This way of considering things in life under the sun is vanity. And that leads to a, a real problem, a real question or statement. Verse 21 is really difficult to translate. And the, the translation we use here, the, the ESV, turns it into a question. Um, who knows whether or not the spirit of man goes up and the spirit of beast goes down. And, and I think in the end that's not the best translation. The technical aspect of it hinges on actually one letter in the sentence. But I think it's better to understand it this way. It's a different kind of question. Who understands? Who understands that the spirit of man goes up and the spirit of beasts goes down? In other words, what the preacher is asking is, who gets it? Who sees that there really is a difference between man and beast? This is the test from God. Or another way to put it, God is exposing this reality to us and seeing if we'll get it. Who's going to get it? Who's going to understand it? Who sees that there really is more to life than life under the sun? Who's hearing and getting the message that the preacher wants us to get? That there is a God and that he rules everything from heaven, the times, the seasons, that he exists in eternity, that man himself has an eternal destiny and that God will judge that eternal destiny as he judges every matter, as he judges every work. So again, who who gets it? Who understands this? Who realizes that eternity itself is at stake? I don't think it's an accident that eternity, God's control from heaven, the consideration of life and where animals go versus where human beings go is all in this same section of Ecclesiastes. There is injustice in this life. There is wickedness where there should be justice and where there should be righteousness. And that's a reminder to us to look to God who sees all things and judges all matters and every work. And this serves the preacher's purpose in Ecclesiastes to drive us to God, to drive us to seek out God and to fear God and to serve him. The question there in verse 21 to me is a question to us all. Do we really realize what's at stake here? And then in verse 22, he makes a conclusion. So I saw. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Nothing better than to rejoice in our work. That's our lot, he says. But here again, he's not being fatalistic. He's not just settling for something here. It really is the best thing for us. In this life under the sun that's so full of vanity, futility, we don't know what's going to come after us. It's kind of a rhetorical question there at the end. In this life of injustice and wickedness, wisdom doesn't bring meaning. Pleasure doesn't bring meaning. 
In fact, pleasure just as often contributes to wickedness than to righteousness. These things that he's considered so far in this book, including the pursuit of success in his labor, doesn't give meaning in life. It's still vanity. Life under the sun is pointless. It's futile. It's vain. And so the preacher says, if this is true, rejoice in what you do have. Rejoice in the work that God has given to you. This is the third time he's told us this in this book. He said the same thing back in chapter 3, verse 13, and in chapter 2, verse 24. Be thankful for what you have from God. In between the dust from which you came and the dust to which you return, rejoice in the life that you have, that God has given you. Our work is God's gift to us for which we can be thankful, as difficult and frustrating as it can be at times. And if we're grateful people, we are content people. But I don't think that's the only, uh, that only applies to our jobs, to our vocations. I think really what the preacher is getting at here is, is all of life, every vocation, every task, every role that we're called to in this life. And what that means, as we think again about the wickedness in, of, of life around us and being content of the circumstances, it doesn't mean, even in being content, that we have to just sit idly by and do nothing about the wickedness around us. Wickedness in the place of justice, wickedness in the place of righteousness, should stir up in us a, a holy dissatisfaction, a holy anger, and that can be a good, proper motivation to go and do something about it. It means we can work to the best of our ability to correct injustice, to protect the biblical view of marriage, to protect the unborn, to protect the elderly, the poor, the weak, the needy, the widow, the orphan, all those who are unjustly taken advantage of. And we can rejoice that we have the opportunity to do that. We can rejoice in what we accomplish, no matter how small it is or, or how big it might be. We can be content. Jesus said, the poor will always be with you. These injustices will always be with us until Christ comes again. But we can rejoice in what he enables us to do, how big or how small. And who knows, maybe God will do something significant through us. William Wilberforce, or one of these other great agents for change. Because in the end, we have the assurance, we have the knowledge, God will judge. Verse 17, He will judge the righteous and the wicked. And for us, who have Christ, that judgment is nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. There's going to be wickedness where there should be justice. There's going to be wickedness in the very place where there should be righteousness. But those are reminders, or should be reminders, we ourselves are wicked. We ourselves are sinful. Every one of us has acted unjustly. Every one of us has lived and acted in some way, shape, or form improperly and even wickedly in the community of God's people. Without Christ, we face judgment a time, a place for every matter, for every work we've done. That's a sobering reality. 
But if we have Christ, again, we have comfort instead of fear. Because we have in Christ Jesus, the one who's received already the punishment that we deserve, the judgment that we deserve, who stood in our place and took God's judgment on our behalf. In terms of of life under the sun, what was done to Jesus was a great, incalculable injustice. What was done to the Son of God was wrong. It was evil. But now think about it in terms of God's rule from heaven. A time and a place and a purpose for everything. What was done to the Son was planned by the Father. What was done to the Son, the Son underwent willingly and did so for us, for every single one of His people, to everyone who would come to Him in repentance and faith, to us poor, wicked, unjust sinners. This was God's purpose under heaven, to turn us from our sins in repentance, to cling to the faith that He's given to us, And that means there's an eternity awaiting for us. That eternity that's been placed in our hearts. An eternity waiting for us where there will be no injustice. Where there will be no wickedness. There will be righteousness and peace and comfort and joy. And we will rejoice in God and in Christ who is our Savior. We'll be working. We don't know what we'll be doing to work. We'll have something to do. At very least, singing God's praises. But there'll be joy in that work. What the preacher commends to us here in Life Under the Sun will be true in all of its greatest fullness and blessing. True joy in the work that we have in the new heavens and the new earth. And because of that, I think the preacher's conclusion can be our conclusion as well. Rejoice. Rejoice in what you have here under the sun, in this life under the sun. Because in some small way, and maybe God has blessed you and it'll be in a big way for you, but in some way, shape, or form, the joy that we have in this life is just a small foretaste of the joy, the eternal joy that we'll have in heaven. Let me pray for us. Oh God, our Father, would you open our eyes to the injustices that exist in this world in which we live, to see them for what they are, to reveal to us our own contribution to it. First of all, so that we would repent and and amend our ways. And as you give us opportunity, O Lord, so that we can do something about it, whether it's teaching children the truths of your word, teaching them to ourselves, studying them, learning them, putting them into practice, taking other kinds of action as you would call us and give us opportunity. But especially, O Lord, would you help us to see that every good and perfect gift comes from you and that the life that we live on this earth is a life in which we can rejoice and experience just a little foretaste of heaven and perhaps even experience that here as we gather together each and every week as your people, uh, to worship you and to sing to you and to hear from you. May this also be a little foretaste of heaven for us. All this we ask, O Lord, in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.